surround yourself with the people who will lift you up in the areas you aren't great in. And none of us is perfect. And whether that's the importance of having an attorney to help you draft contracts or a CPA to give you advice or a CFO to guide you or where you're going to live and where your kid's going to go to school. All of those things is you can't be everything for everyone all the time. So you need to do what you're best at. And in order to do that, you need support in a lot of areas. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is a global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil, and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities both upstream and downstream without compromising safety by delivering strategies that optimize operations to reduce costs and risk. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. Before I introduce this week's guest, I actually have a review to read from Saxon Second. Award-winning, five-star. I've been listening for years to this podcast, and it keeps getting better and better. The interviews behind the scenes, insights from leaders, and qualities are all superb. This show needs to be nominated for an award. Well, I'm glad you think so, Saxon. I appreciate that. I don't think I'm going to win anything, but I do have one thing under my belt is that I'm the first oil and gas podcaster that is a female. That's an award enough for me. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a second, 10 second survey and we'll get the ship out to you. All right, let's get into it. I'm sitting here today with Sarah Magruder, founder, president and chief executive officer at Savvy Oil and Gas Consulting and Oil and Gas Investors 25 Influential Women in Energy 2023. Congratulations on that title, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> well, so welcome to the show. Let's discuss how you got into the oil and gas industry? So my journey into oil and gas was very accidental. My first job, I started out in the sales tax industry and went to work for a consulting firm that did that. It was a smaller company that was growing and I thought that seemed exciting. So I dodged a bullet of uh, offer from Enron. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, energy was still big back when I graduated in 2001 and Enron was a hot offer then, but I like the idea of kind of building something and going into sales tax. But after Enron fell and Arthur Anderson, and they came up with Sarbanes-Oxley and the big four had to shut off their side businesses, Mm -hmm. it couldn't be the audit partner and also do consulting. And so the company I was with, happened to buy them all. And so they bought a severance tax group from PwC that came over and I had no idea what severance tax was, but I made friends with the two managers and they asked me to join their team. And I was like, man, oil and gas, that's what you want to be in in Houston. And so I jumped in and learned it. And it it just happened to be at the time when the state was rewriting the regulations and exemptions for severance tax. And so I was just in the right place at the right time to grow with that and get exposed to a lot of companies and learn a lot. Although I kind of did things backwards and that I didn't know kind of how we got to where we were. I knew how to fix and find money and what was left, but I didn't really understand the accounting process, all the things that preceded the severance tax returns. And so after a couple of years, I got an offer to go to industry and I felt like I needed to round out that understanding and go do this for an oil and gas company. And luckily ended up at a smaller company called Swift Energy that was private home-owned and people there had been there, everybody for like 20, 30 years. And so I really got to learn from the best that knew what they did, did it well. They taught me, you know, production, gas balancing, 
financial reporting, audit. I just really got to absorb the entire process of oil and gas accounting. And for that, I'm very grateful and still lean on that. And a lot of those people I'm still friends with to this day. And that was kind of my path through oil and gas was via industry and then consulting. And then about four years ago, almost five now, started my own company. Very good. Man, really dodged a bullet on the Enron stuff, <laughs> well, didn't you? <laughs> all, all the time. You know, my parents, I was supposed to stay through and get my MBA and you know, I just got the itch to every four to five years, I kind of get an itch. I can't stay in something longer than that. And so at college, I just was like, man, I really want to go work. I can come back and get my MBA later. I want to get in on this. And they were not pleased with that until the Enron thing. And they were like, wow, well, we're really glad you didn't go there. <laughs> Me too. (laughs) I mean, it was very sad for a lot of people. I mean, it completely changed our industry, you know? Yeah. But I just happened again, just to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, good for you. Because I know some people that were there when all that went down and it just was not the best experience. No, not at all. Okay. So there are a lot of different tax terms. So in case the audience doesn't know, can you explain what severance tax is? So severance tax is... A state and local tax that is on products that are severed from the earth. So that's why it's called a severance tax is it's on things that are actually severed from the earth, like timber, oil, gas, iron, coal. There's a severance tax on anything like that. And it's a recompense to the state for taking the natural products out of the ground to kind of give value back for what you've taken. And the thing with severance tax is it is not equal in any state. So every state, it's a little bit different, different rates, different exemptions, different incentives. And that factors into a company's bottom line of deciding where they're going to drill, where they're going to buy, where they're going to invest their dollars. This can really be part of the economics of making those decisions is the states with the friendlier tax on the back end, because it is mainly a value-based tax. So when oil and gas prices are high, You know, the state of Texas, I think it was $30 billion in severance tax this year. So that's huge to a state's coffers. And it makes a big difference when you're sitting in there trying to decide whether to do an acquisition or where to put your funds for the next year. This is one of those things that can carve out from that profit. Right, right. And so whenever you're dealing with a state directly, and I know everything is different, and I think a lot of people don't realize that each state has private property, which belongs to the state, and then there's also BLM properties, so there's public lands. So whenever you deal with a state, do you deal with the state directly, or do you deal with whoever has jurisdiction over the oil and gas industry? Do you deal with them directly? I know for BLM, you deal with the Office of Natural Resources Revenue, right? Correct. And so we have a whole team at Savvy that specializes in federal royalties with the ONRR, also with the Indian tribes like the Hickorya, you know, the various tribes that are out there, you have to deal with them directly because they are their own entity as well. And then you have state royalty factions as well. So the Texas General Land Office is the one for Texas. And so, yeah, those agency relationships are very important when you're dealing with state, federal, or sovereign royalties. They audit and monitor those very, very carefully. (laughs) Yeah, they do. They very much do because they want their money. (laughs) Indeed. So that's one side of it. The severance tax is specifically at a state level and it's only domestic to the United States. It's not offshore. So we're dealing with the Texas Comptroller's Office. We do deal with the Railroad Commission of Texas, or yes, often, and then Louisiana Department of Revenue, whatever the agency is that governs that state severance tax. So we deal with a lot of agencies. (laughs) Yeah, I totally get that. So what made you go, okay, I'm going to start my own company? You know, there were a lot of factors that came into it. I thought it before. I really think it just came down to timing, and it's also... The arc of your career and deciding what the next five to 10 years looks like. And it was, I kind of started this practice from the ground up at two different consulting firms. I'd done it in industry. And I really felt like there were a lot of things that I wanted to do that I could only do if I started my own company. So, you know, I'll give an example. I was just telling somebody earlier, I feel like at Savvy, we have done our job when our client doesn't need us anymore. That's not a popular consultant model. Yeah. <laughs> consulting firms I look like, you know, and with, they're like, don't give them the secret sauce. We want them to need us forever. 
that's our future revenue. And I just don't look at it that way. I go, hey, I sat in this role. I did this job. I want to understand what I'm doing wrong. I don't want the company losing money because of some reason. If I can fix this, I want to fix it and get everything right and then do a better job going forward. And we have the ability to teach people that. So it was either stay in consulting and live under the rules of whoever you're with or start my own company where I can say my philosophy is a little different. And I feel like the value I bring, as you know, in oil and gas, it is completely dynamic. It never sits still. So that client, you know, they may be great on their own for two years and then they do an acquisition or they get purchased or somebody leaves. And I want them to pick up the phone and call me when they need me, not because they can't live without me. That's fair. That's very refreshing. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I think it goes back to that golden rule you learn as a child, which is do unto others as you want done unto you. And I put myself in their shoes and go, what would I want if I'm them? I've been that client before and I just want to understand so I can do better and do the best job possible and learn. So I have the ability to do that for people. I didn't want to be restricted and be able to do really what the client needs as opposed to telling them what I could do. Yeah, that brings a different level of trust going, hey, here's what we do, but you've caught on. I'm glad you got it. Let me know if you need me. Yeah, I feel like it's a true consultant, right? If you're paying a CPA to file your taxes, you want to know enough to know they did a good job, but you want to just call them when you need them. You don't want to have to call them every day going, can I afford to buy this? You know, you want to operate independently and do your job well. And I feel like consulting took a little different turn maybe after the whole Enron thing and went to this contingency model and people wanting to lock people in for a long time and kind of keeping that black box closed. And for me, I'm like, hey, it's Pandora land. Let's open up bad boy up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and really, it's not just a, a provocative thing, but it's more our industry can't grow and be better if people aren't learning how to be and do better. So it bogs us all down within a company and within the industry. If you have a lack of knowledge, a lack of training, you know, so much was outsourced over the past couple of years to other countries. And we lost that knowledge base. And a lot of people retired during COVID. And as an industry, we've got to add that back in. So I may be one little tiny piece of that, but it at least makes me feel like I'm giving back. Well, not only that, I kind of feel as though you've reached that point where you're like, if I don't want to work with you, because look, not everybody in the industry is fun to work with. It's great that you're in that place where you can go, no, thank you. And that is a great point. I don't I don't mention that much. It is a nice little bonus of, you're right, we get to kind of hand select and choose our clients. You know, my clients are my friends. They're, we text each other and send Christmas cards and we really do develop a relationship and work with them. But I think to your point, there's a trust level that's been established of, we are here to help you and make you look good and don't have ulterior motives. right? And you know, I've genuinely had calls before with people where I've said, hey, I don't think we're the right consultant for you. If this is what's important to you, I don't think we're the right fit. And you're right, having your own company, you're comfortable enough to say that. And I actually mean it when I say it. If I do, I think you're better served with somebody else. So We love our clients and I think that makes a difference. And I would say our best referrals come from our clients telling other people about us. Yeah, that's definitely the best way. That's the best way. Yeah, yeah. I don't think a lot of people and the listeners, I don't know if you know this, but there's more to a client than just saying, yes, I'll work for you because you need the money. It's like, you know, Sarah just said, it's that whole relationship and the trust on both sides. So... I'm glad you're in that space. That's a fantastic place to be. Well, and it, you know, you have to have that trust level when you're going in. It's kind of like, like I said, with somebody going into, if they opened up your checking account and we're analyzing it, we're looking at very large companies, you know, biggest companies in the world, their GL and seeing everything. And the way that we look at it, we can catch problems. We can catch underpayments as easy as we catch overpayments and We're going to tell you the truth, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. And then it's also a a stance of, we have an expectation that if we do discover something, that our client's going to do the right thing. And if you don't, you're not going to be our client because it's, for us, there's a standard that has to be met and we're not going to risk our reputation 
And, and sometimes it's not all good news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In some ways, it's more than just a reputation that you could lose. Like, you know, y'all are certified in specific things. And, you know, at a certain point in a contract, you're left on the hook for stuff. So like, yeah, that's a bit of risk. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into leadership. Sarah, what is leadership to you? Leadership to me is don't give up the ship, which is my dad went to the Naval Academy. And that's something that's always hung in my head is every day is not going to be peachy. The leader has to do the hard things. Sometimes you've got to bring the team together. When you have a bad day, you can't let people see that. It's always bringing the energy, doing what's right, putting people in the right places, making the tough decisions, but also constantly growing. I think a leader, you know, they say it's something that is, it's not a title. It's something of, do people follow you? Do they listen to you? And I'm very proud that everybody that works for me at Savvy either was my client at one time or had worked with me in industry and they've been with me for years and years. And that to me, I have trust in them. They know who I am. We have shared values, but I also put a lot in to being a good leader. You know, I listen to podcasts. I read books. I'm constantly learning from other people, from history, you know, trying to hone that craft. It is something that is, again, not a title. You have to put effort into it. And then it's also being open for criticism, asking for it, and then building on that and sharing it with your team and delegating, creating the leaders from within. There shouldn't be a dictator in a company. It should really be, you know, you have a role there, but you don't hang that over people's heads. And I feel that for leadership, again, my dad was a captain in the Navy and he had a crew, but they were like one big family. And to me, my team, we're one big family, but Again, good, bad, and ugly with that. Of But you learn to work through it together and have respect for each other. But it's also being a leader in the community and being out there saying and doing the right things. Everybody does that every day is showing who you are. So not just having that title, but living that to me is leadership. Yeah, yeah. So basically, don't be passive aggressive as a leader. Oh, and, that, and it's so hard because I am very conflict avoidant by nature. I did a lot of reading of a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. And I have worked on having tough conversations. And when you own your own company, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> but you can always right. learn how to do that better. And whether that's with clients, my children, my husband, my team, you're going to have to have those. You can't avoid them. And that is an art. Some people are very good at it and some people just don't want to do it, but you have to. Yeah. Understood. What is an example of a difficult experience that you've had as a leader? There have been a lot of them. I would say letting people go is Mm. the hardest for me. I'm that person that'll give a million chances. I want to, I'm very optimistic. I want everything to work out. Sometimes saying this isn't working out, it to me, it's like getting a divorce. You know, this is somebody you've invested time, money, and energy in, and in a small group that's really difficult. And I've only had to do it a few times over my career. I've been fortunate in that. It's hard. I would say that's the hardest thing. Yeah. I think it's harder to let someone go versus firing them. Yeah. In my opinion, I guess that small, hey, you screwed up, buddy kind of thing doesn't bother me as much like you know you're responsible for yourself kind of thing where I don't feel as bad but if I'm having to let someone go because we have to let you go that's so much harder for me it is and I think that you know one of the lessons you learn is some teams you're given you know when you're in industry you don't get to pick them you're put over them and and you're given them some you get to choose and you know making sure people are in the right place doing the right thing You have to listen to your people to really understand if they're happy and they're content doing what you want, because people will try to do anything for you. But I'm a big proponent of these personality tests and and, uh, Myers-Briggs and stuff and understanding. And I love getting into those and our team does them and we discuss them all together because it's you want to learn how to communicate better. And so I think over the years, I've learned a lot of lessons of how to recognize what's working and what's not. And you know, to prepare for those and that it is part of the business sometimes. I guess the best way to put it is it's not personal, it's business. For me, it's hard to disconnect those two, but it's one of those things you just have to learn by doing. For me, people 
are more important than anything. And I value them very, very much. So I'd say that something not working out is tough one. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. A hundred percent get that. Okay. So what is the most rewarding thing about leadership? Oh, goodness. I would say kind of what you led this with of being recognized by your peers is a really nice attribute because I think that owning your company is kind of an all-consuming thing and you're really just kind of doing everything for everyone else. You're trying to keep all the parts moving, wearing a lot of hats, spending a lot of energy. When somebody from the outside sees you and you get recognized and nominated for a nice award or asked to be on a podcast or something, to me, that kind of always stops me in my tracks because I just don't think about it. It's kind of the silver lining is I'm not here to be up on stage because I'm an accountant, you know, like I'm used to being a computer, <laughs> but I do like people, but I'm not used to being in a spotlight or recognized that way. And it's really nice because I feel like that's other people recognizing your leadership and what you're doing. And I think anybody being recognized for the job that they do. And when you are the leader, that's what you're judged on. So that to me is the most rewarding part of it is seeing my clients be happy, my employees be proud, and that our impression in the industry is that I'm doing a good job by my peers. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm on a different kind of stage where people see me all the time and it's kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. So to receive an award, that's really cool. But to be in the limelight all the time, that's kind of out there. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. No, it, it, it's not something I seek nor want. In fact, it, you know, one of my biggest fears is public speaking and, you know, stand up on a stage in front of 700 people terrifies me. But again, it's one of those challenges you just have to get over and find a way to get through. But if that was my daily job, I would be exhausted and, and frazzled. So it's really nice when it happens, but it's certainly an aspect that's a little unexpected. It's nice to have those as one-offs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where you and I identify with the regulatory and the finance stuff. I just we're the behind the scenes people. It is. But when, you know, you got to be the face of a company, you kind of got to wear both. You know, I sometimes yeah. forget that I um, technically am an expert in what I do. And running a company, you don't get to use that every day because you've built out a team of technical experts. So they come to me when it's something to review or something high level or questions, but I'm not in the day-to-day client data. I'm running a company and that requires a lot of things, but I do kind of miss, I like to get in the data and kind of use my skills. So I miss that sometimes. I get it. Yeah. I feel the same way. I'm just like, oh, I just want to look at all this and audit yeah, stuff. Like I'm, I'm really weird. a nerd at heart. You know, <laughs> I, I love to, to be in Excel. <laughs> same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I miss that with all my wells and platforms and stuff. So yeah, us nerds over here having a conversation. I know. <laughs> so if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be, Sarah? I think a piece of advice would be to be purposeful in everything that you do. And with that is planning, having intent, knowing why you're doing things, what the end goal is for, because you can just get lost in the everyday. And if you don't have that longer term vision and also use that purpose to say, I want to run a company successfully. I also want to be a good mother. I also need to sleep. You really have to purposely plan out your day to get everything done to meet the needs of your family, your work clients, and yourself. And you have to know your purpose of, I can't grow this company if I'm not healthy. And I can't raise my child and give him attention if I'm always working. And so you have to be very purposeful about your decisions, what's important to you, and make sure that you keep that in mind every day so that you can be the best you can be. And without purpose, what's the point? Yeah. And then the the harder part is finding that balance, right? 100%. Especially as a mom and a boss. It is. And it's funny because I'll give you an example of that is, you know, I knew I kind of in starting the company, you know, you put everything in it and you're running, running, running. and, And I was like, man, I need to start taking care of myself. But I'm like, man, what do I have time to work out? Like, because for a woman, you work out, you get sweaty, right? We have to like do makeup and hair and, you know, all of this. And so I just had to say, you know what, I'm going to go to the gym, see a personal trainer Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 
830 in the morning and nobody can bother me until 10 o'clock on those days. Yeah. And I realized I own my own company, so I can say that. <laughs> and like, you know, it's nobody is stopping me <laughs> except for me and to say, hey, this is what I'm doing to take care of myself. And then also that lets your team know I'm okay with you also doing this if you need to take care of yourself. We don't have to have set work hours. I mean, we lived through a pandemic. And so it's stop making excuses and make a plan, you know, have some purpose there and find a way to get it done that works for you. But there is a solution to every problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I really don't think people understand how important self-care is. This is something I've talked about, I think, with Ian Ord a few episodes back, that if you're not in the right mindset, then how do you expect your employees to be? And you also have to set the example that that's important. You know, on our weekly calls, we have our all hands on deck. We do an exercise of clearing feelings and say, how do you feel physically, mentally, and emotionally today? And give one word that says that. And to me, that's a very human thing of saying, where are you at going into this week? What's going on? It starts that conversation. It lets the team know, where are you at? And if you see somebody that is not having good answers to that many weeks in a row, it's kind of a clue into that. But you're absolutely right. If I don't get enough sleep, I'm not as fun to work with. You know, if <laughs> you know I'm not eating well or going out to dinners too many nights a week or whatever, I'm not going to be in my best form. And we're all going to have those days, but you do have to try to prioritize your health. I'm, I'm a big proponent of mental health. I love my therapist. I've been seeing one for years, you know, a business coach. And I mean, sometimes I just go sit at my table and work on a puzzle in the middle of the day because you need to clear your brain and think. So some people meditate. I sometimes float in the pool and just stare at the clouds, you know, whatever you have to do to pause and recharge. Yeah. I love a good puzzle. Yes, me too. Yes, very much. That's, so. that's a nerd thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're hanging out after this, yes, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You mentioned the book Radical Candor. Is that the book that has influenced you the most? Or do you have another one for me? There's several I love to read. I read a lot of books, but I will say two that I would say influenced me in the past four years, right before I started my company, I read Brene Brown, Staring Greatly. And I think if you read that book at a certain point in your life where you're really needing some clarity, and again, that purpose, that book really helped me cement that and organize and and figure out what my purpose was and that you have a path. There's two paths, choose one. And it helped me choose that path of starting my own company. My other second book was my COVID Discovery, and it's called The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. It's just a daily kind of meditation. And during COVID, it was one of those things where there was just so much negative stuff on the news and just people getting sick and, you know, you got so down. And I heard someone somewhere say, you know, it's hard to think positively when all you have is this negative input. So you need to put a little bit of positive needs to outweigh that negative. And so I made a point at that time to say, I'm going to start my day reading The Daily Stoic. There's one page per day. And it's just kind of some positive thoughts and things to for your brain to think on throughout the day. And that has really, uh, I guess, helped me to look at things from different perspectives, kind of learn from the old and just made that a practice in my life. And I still do it today. Very good. And is that difficult for you? Because I guess because in my experience, I'm more of a realist and I look at numbers and I look at data. Is that something you struggle with? Mm. Where you're not, you're kind of in the middle, you're not negative, but you're not positive. So you need that something in your life to kind of like push you. 100%. I have to put that inspiration. I got to watch my Ted Lasso. If I just watch Dateline all day long, you know, I would be in a bummer. (laughs) So you do want to maintain that balance of putting positive in, like, you know, watch a Dateline, but then watch an episode of Ted Lasso. So you've got that positive input in and you have to consciously do it though. Yeah. Yeah, no, I have a list my therapist gave me. So oh. you got to use those affirmations. Oh, I use them all. This is any tool that I can get. It differs by the day. So, you know, it, <laughs> and, and my team even knows that about me. If you see me kind of down, you know, perk me up. I love quotes. You kind of have to lift each other up, but you got to be able to lift yourself up too. 
Yeah, that's very important. Incredibly important. So Sarah, what would you say is your most used business tool? Oh, goodness. I think my most used business tool really is LinkedIn for my purposes right now. I feel like it's one of the best kind of free advertising that you can get of communicating with the network, being in touch with the news. Of, I mean, it's kind of like my newspaper for oil and gas. You know, I read about what's going on, mergers and acquisitions, people moving around and having all of that input in my head helps me do my job well. And it kind of puts it all in one place of connecting and being able to also then put our news out of what we do and who we are. So I'm on LinkedIn every day for at least a little bit, scrolling through, trying to be active and utilize that tool in my business. Which is actually how I found you. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of places I go where people walk up and they go, you're Sarah Magruder. I'm like, hello. They're like, I know you (laughs) come LinkedIn. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like... A lot of people, it's weird when people know your name and you're like, oh, I'm not used to it. Yep. <laughs> yep. That happens to me a lot at conferences. Yeah. They'll hear my voice and be like, oh, it's Paige. Yeah. You do have a very unique voice. I think I do too. And it is like that face of LinkedIn. And, you know, I've taken classes on kind of how to hack the a- algorithm. So I think I probably end up at the top of people's feed more than some people because I do that purposely. Good for you. It has that consequence. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It does. (laughs) So who would you say, I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, who would you say is your most respected competitor? I have two answers to that. So the first one is, I don't really see us as having a competitor. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody does what we do the way we do it. So there's a lot of people that may do segments of what we do, but the full service that we provide somebody the way we do it, I don't see anybody that out there that does what we do. And even when our offerings to clients, you know, it's very different from what their other engagements look like. But I respect, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, it really, you know, we just have a different approach. But I respect all of competitors and they're kind of fewer and far between because they eat each other a lot. <laughs> but, you know, it, oil and gas is such a small world that you can't burn bridges. And a lot of them, you know, I've known for years, some of them were my employees you know, at one time you've run into them in industry, you see them at conferences and you never want to burn bridges. So I always tell people I'm Switzerland. I'm not going to say neutral. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything good, bad. You know, I'm just neutral when it comes to our competitors. I'll go, oh, great. Well, if you like them, wonderful. Like I'm not that person that's going to throw anybody under the bus. And like I said, if you want to work with us, this is how we do things. And if you come over, great. If you don't, great. You know, I'm sure... Just go where you're happy. And so I really tried to be very neutral in that area and be friends with everybody. And kind of the side part of that is everybody tells me everything. So when you're Switzerland, they know you don't have sides. You just kind of get information. And I just keep that in myself and, you know, watch everything going around me. Yeah. Observations. Yes. I love studying people. (laughs) Yeah. That's my favorite thing to do is to go to the mall and sit in the food court. Oh, yeah. Or go to the airport and like make up stories about where people are going and what they're doing. And yeah. 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 I'll be doing that Friday. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. So even though you don't necessarily have competition, what makes you better than the rest? There is something very distinct that sets us apart from everybody else. If you went to any of what people would deem our competitors and you ask them, What's the average amount of your employees? What is the average years that they worked in an oil and gas company doing oil and gas accounting? I would bet to say if you took a survey right now of that, their average would be like two. There's a lot of people that come from different industries that do this consulting. A lot of people that come straight out of college. Very few that have an industry accounting background. And my team, the average is 25 years. So Mm. everyone on my team has spent, you know, 20 to 30 years doing this job in oil and gas accounting over the ups and downs of a 20-year cycle, different accounting systems, different roles within that company. And you will not find the level and combination of experience and years of actual oil and gas accounting anywhere, not even close. Yeah. Yeah. So that sets us apart because... We can't answer that question of why isn't this tying out? And we'll go, well, go to your source documents. And it goes all the way back to the field. And the production numbers were amended and that didn't get put into revenue. And like, 
we look at the whole puzzle and a lot of people just look at the numbers at the end. And for us, it's, we want your whole process to be right. We're going to find that every single little thing because we can. Yeah. Details make up the whole thing. Yeah. And knowing where to look and just life experience in that, you know, you, you can't teach that to get out of college. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard to teach a kid out of college anything. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so throughout this entire journey of your career, what is your most important lesson learned? I would say surround yourself with the people who will lift you up in the areas you aren't great in. And none of us is perfect. And whether that's the importance of having an attorney to help you draft contracts or a CPA to give you advice or a CFO to guide you or where you're going to live and where your kid's going to go to school. All of those things is you can't be everything for everyone all the time. So you need to do what you're best at. And in order to do that, you need support in a lot of areas, like having someone come clean my house so that I don't have to do that or whatever you find for that. I think the most important lesson is I would say in my early life, I wanted to do everything and I had a hard time asking for help. And I don't believe any one person can do it all. I think you can do it all with help. And so I can do the things I want to do in my life and in my business because I have proper help that I've asked for and and leaned on. And it's hard to give up that control and trust other people. Yeah, You have to find those people who are your anchors and fill out those things to allow you to be you and the best that you can be in any aspect of your life. And so don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, I get that. And it kind of goes back to that control thing. You trust yourself so much, I think, in certain circumstances that it's like, nobody can do this better than me. So I have to do this. But in hindsight, you go, no, actually, I'm not the best at that. There is someone else that can yeah. Do that. You don't know what you don't know, but it's funny because yeah. when you asked me that, my first answer was going to be trust your gut. And then I'm like, oh no, my gut's been wrong a lot. <laughs> 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 but you didn't know until you didn't know, you know? Yeah. And I was like, no, no, I think the right answer is just sometimes you don't know and you need help and you can't do it all. And you're right. I feel like we're kindred spirits and I feel like, yeah, I can figure this out. I'm smart. I can Google. Exactly. I can be a lawyer. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm not an engineer. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a lot of things that, and you trust the people who that's what they do and do it well. And finding and building that kind of team around you is very critical to success. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. So how is your role important to the future of the industry and how do you think the industry will be impacted? And I'm not asking, you know, are you going to turn the world around and solve, you know, hunger and all this stuff? <laughs> but like what you're doing is different. It is. Than most of the guests I have on, way different than all of the hosts we have on our network. You're just in a different space and it's very interesting to me. It is very interesting. And it's, I think that if I could make any difference, it's in showing, you know, dealing with CFOs, CEOs, controllers, the little things matter and having things right matters, doing the right thing matters, investing in that, you know, accounting is not a money generating aspect of an oil and gas company, the, the drilling and completion and, you know, all the sexy stuff, hedging and this and that. Accounting is a GNA function. But it is critical that it is correct, not just from federal regulatory standpoint, state regulatory, your royalty owners and how their revenues and taxes are distributed and that you're taking all the deductions and being a good steward of everything. All of those things matter. And if one company at a time, I can preach that within and help that become something that's noticed, that would be great. But then it's also, I found kind of through its own happening of being a woman business owner in this industry. There's not a lot of women leaders. There's not a lot of CEOs of oil and gas EMP companies. And so being able to use my experience to help show that as uncomfortable as it makes me <laughs> to be a, you know, a face on LinkedIn or getting an award, I feel like that serves a greater purpose in the conversation of 
not just promoting women, but just recognizing that everybody's equal and smart and we all work together. And so there's a little bit of that too, but also it's figuring out what your next journey is. And I've been approached about being on public boards and things and seeing that potentially being in my future where I can make an impact, maybe at an even higher level to give some perspective. That would be great if that happened. So to me, it's the little things matter and the little guys matter and being able to reflect that, whether it's at Women's Energy Network or on a public board or within my company or to my clients, I feel like bringing this knowledge back and making energy fun again. I think so many people went away from it and it's gotten such a bad moniker that even my dad, it took me a while to convince him oil companies aren't big and bad and doing awful things. In fact, they're helping way more than people know. So all of those, the little things add up to the big things, I guess is what I'm saying. And if I can help in any way, chip away at some of those things and help revitalize, retrain, re-energize companies and get everybody operating more smoothly, it only is better for all of us. Yeah. And I like that you said the small things make up the big things because I've been saying that forever to my dad because his advice to me always was don't sweat the small stuff. And I'm like, but. Oh, the small stuff is everything. Yeah. I'm like, I get what you're trying to say, but that doesn't necessarily make sense. Well, and it, you know, I'm from Louisiana. So in Louisiana terms. Oh, where are you from? I, so am I. Oh, gosh. I'm redneck country up in North Louisiana, cotton country. So, I mean, my family's, you know, all over Louisiana, related to everybody in my hometown. They, uh, my godmother used to tell me, you know, it's that's a little alligator. You don't need to worry about the little alligators, just the big ones, you know. And I was like, I'm kind of worried about the little ones because mama's probably not far behind. But those little ones, if, if they all pile up on you, you're dead. I think it's how you think about things. Like, I can see how the little things can pile up on you. And I'm a little bit scared of little alligators. <laughs> Other people in other states were like, oh, Lord. oh, I know. That's only something you can tell somebody who's from Louisiana. <laughs> like, watch out. If you get a whole bag of crawfish dumped on you, they're going to pinch you to death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, speaking of thoughts in the industry, in the misinformation that those that don't work in the industry, you know, don't quite grasp. What are your thoughts about telling someone about this industry like you have with your dad that doesn't understand the industry? You know, it's hard because one of the things that frustrates me most about oil and gas is I don't think we've had a combined really good marketing message out on the platforms that people are utilizing now. So maybe they have ads on the news and stuff. People DVR everything and skim right through those or getting the articles published out there. So I really think it is kind of a grassroots effort of educating people. ESG is a good example of that. You know, everybody's like, oh, you know, these ESG reports. And I'm like, oil and gas companies have been doing this for years. It just hasn't been something that has been made a big deal of, reflected, and been as visible to the public, I would say. But we've been taking care of well sites and, and wetlands and endangered species and giving money to this and Also, another great way if you're using dollars and cents is, again, back to the budget of severance tax funds 100% the state of Texas's rainy day fund. So the state of Texas is fueled by oil and gas in a lot of ways with, you know, know, people paying taxes and living here and working in this industry and everything like that. But we have a rainy day fund for what if the oil goes boom, you know, and we have nothing. The rainy day fund is there to keep the state going. And like I said, severance taxes, the oil and gas industry funds that thing. And when legislator goes into session, they can do requests from there for new schools, new roads. So to not just see oil and gas as big and bad, but my educating them would be, let me tell you how much they put back in. And the roads we build and the sites we clean up. And that's even a bigger deal in New Mexico. Oh gosh, yes. And New Mexico is an interesting example because they had a governor a few years ago who was very anti-oil and gas and very public about that. And it really hurt the state. And a lot of people left, sold off their assets there and left out of there. And what happened was it hit the pocketbooks because severance tax funded all the school districts 
And so when those tax dollars weren't coming in and the schools were hurting and the state's trying to figure out how to come up with money, they've now this past year done a huge campaign of oil and gas is great. We love everybody. And we want you back (laughs) here. And, you know, they're making a huge marketing effort to reverse that damage done. And that's kind of an example of my whole point of don't run somebody out when you don't realize how critical they are and all the good that is being done. And even today, like on LinkedIn, seeing oil and gas companies contribute a ton to charity and volunteers and prosperity. Yeah, this is good people. This is our industry in this state. And and in fact, we care more about emissions than damn near any industry. So you go into, yeah. you know, the car builders and stuff and coal mines, all of these things. Yeah, like we actually have less emissions than a ton of industries in this country, but people don't hear about that. So I think having a couple good cold hard facts in your pocket and then also explaining it to people in terms that they understand of, I'm not going to argue with you about what is or isn't in the news. I'm going to tell you what you're not hearing in the news Yeah, and how this impacts the everyday person. You know, some people are still not going to listen. Yeah, yeah, you have those people that have already made up their mind and there's just no no use to even try to explain cuz they're set in their ways and it's usually older people. Yeah, but it it is funny like since I started savvy, you know, my dad works with us as a little special advisor. He does research for me on um just world issues, domestic issues and he just volunteers and helps out the company. But in doing so, he's really gotten into it and he comes to me all the time with facts about did you know that this was done and how much they tried to reduce the emissions? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been telling you. Like, he was like, well, why aren't they broadcasting this everywhere? And I'm like, great question. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cute that he's like, some people have to see it for themselves, read it for themselves. They're not going to believe you. It's very true because in their mind, you have an agenda because big oil is big oil. so And you can't argue with anybody. Like no. you either got to give them facts and they're going to accept it or not and or put it in terms that matters to them. It's a different age. And I think oil and gas as an industry is a little bit behind in putting the good news out. Well, and a lot of that I believe has to do with them just going for as long as ever. Oh, okay. That's how you feel about us. Okay. And never educating, which is what the Oil and Gas Global Network does. This is why we have a network of podcasts exactly. is to help with that movement of going, hey, people, here are the facts. Here's some education. Check us. Well, and it not to get political, but that plays into it when it becomes something that a political candidate, whether they're state president, whatever, if they hang their hat on something oil and gas you're going to get attacked from one side or the other. Oh, yeah. So every four years, damage is done, no matter what the side, you know, because it's... Oh, they all suck. Yeah, and so you're kind of... So you're right. I think oil and gas goes, you know, and I'm Switzerland. I don't want to be in the middle of this. Leave me out of it. I'm just going to be over here doing what I do. And that stuff gets brought out and people pay attention to that because, yeah, the average person isn't going to go, oh, what's ESG and go research that. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Well, if anybody is interested in it, we have an ESG energized podcast. So I will put a little plug in for the Texas Energy Council, which I just got elected board of. And they have been doing a big initiative for the past couple of years to change the curriculum in schools in Texas public schools to include segments on energy from everything from kindergarten to 12th grade that explain how energy works, how it's a part of our state and how it impacts the economy and just facts, not one way or the other. But to me, that's the way to really like this generation, they're already shot, but we can get to the next one and and just educate them that this is a big part of our state and our resources and how we take care of them and how important that is and what kind of revenue this generates and how so I didn't know this. They only change school curriculum every 10 years. And so yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So you have to, it's a lot of work that they've been doing to create the curriculum, get it approved, pan it out for everybody. And then there's a cost to getting that implemented in schools, you know, because they have to reprint textbooks and all of this stuff, which they do every 10 years. So I think stuff like that matters and getting that next generation to just at least consider this perspective and not just what your parents would have thought. 
Right, right. And actually, I'd like to have a conversation after the interview ends about that. So remind sure. me when we're done. Yeah, I think we can collaborate very well on that. Great. On that. So yeah. So do you have a favorite podcast? <laughs> I'm hesitant to say because, you know, I like listening to The Daily Stoic, that book that I like. They do have a podcast that's just like two or three minutes every day. And I... Oh, that's good. I listen to that. It's just like a daily kind of meditation to start your day. I like to inject that positive energy. But my flip side of that is I also like to listen to one called Southern Fried True Crime. Ooh. That's when I like turn my work brain off and just kind of get into those stories. So sometimes you just got to like check out and go to a different place. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. You do. And it, it's a fine blend between with, you know, being in your car, you could listen to podcasts all day. You could listen to an audiobook, You could listen to music. What are you going to do? You know, and I kind of mix it up. I don't like to, uh, like you said, whatever energy I need that day is what I'm going to do. So there's a wide gamut. <laughs> it just might involve murder. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> For some reason, that's soothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> you actually have no idea how many people have gone. I like to listen to podcasts about murder. Uh, I'm like, I, know. I, I get it. I, know. I get it. I don't know why. It's the mystery. I it think. is. It's the it's solving the, the mystery. And as we discussed, it's the human element of understanding people, studying people. How did this happen? What are the signs? Like it's the how do I avoid this happening to me? And the story that you get into, not not the details of the murder, but the what was the situation here? Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely understand. <laughs> yeah. Huge fan of uh, Criminal Minds. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining me today, Sarah. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Savvy Oil and Gas Consulting, how might they go about doing so? I think the best ways are I'm on LinkedIn. You can't miss me. And then our websites, uh, SavvyOGC.com. Those are probably your two best bets. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.